Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Friends, the scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I'm sorry, Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer, night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we come to this very moment of silence and reflection, still for so many of us it's difficult to be still or quiet because our thoughts still race. We we live in the past when we regret the past, or we live in the future when we fear the future, but the one place it's so hard for us to be is right here, right now. This is exactly where you are. We come to this moment from all sorts of experiences and perspectives and attitudes right now. Some of us come hopeful, joyful, anticipating what you might do or say or what the new year might bring. Others of us struggling, questioning, fearing, not sure how we're going to pay the next rent bill. Some of us come to this moment believing, others unbelieving, most of us somewhere in between. 
We come to this moment entertained and addicted or angry or frustrated. However we are right now, help us to see that you know us in all our complexity and contradictions and you love us more deeply than we could ever imagine. And this love is revealed in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Teach us in the way that our lives would be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. And send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, this was just a different type of COVID Christmas, wasn't it? You know, I... I love asking people what traditions you normally have and then kind of what you actually did for this Christmas. And I know for some of you, you know, you couldn't be with family and that was a really hard thing. For some of you, you couldn't be with family and that was a really good thing for you. So we all approach this in very different perspectives. For us, you know, the the tradition that we were not able to do that I lament and mourn is that normally on Christmas Eve, right after the Christmas service here, my family and I go down to Tijuana to a neighborhood called Las Playas, which is appropriately at the beaches in Tijuana. And that's where Florence's aunts and uncle, you know, aunts live and cousins and, and everybody there. And we have pasole and tamales and, you know, fire, nothing, fireworks, nothing says... The, the birth of the Lord into this world, like lighting off a Roman candle at the beaches in Mexico. So I lament that we were not able to do that. But still, we have the Nalt family Christmas triple header on Christmas Day. So we wake up at our home right here, light a fire in the fireplace, presents for the kids, brunch and all that. And just like if you're used to doing that in any way, you know there's kind of a lull, like the sugar high dies down, the kids have gone through their you know, the stockings and all that stuff. But for us, right when that lull starts to hit, that's when we get in the minivan and we go to Ocean Beach to be with my folks there and my sisters and all that. And so it's like, it just kind of, you keep riding the high of the day. And then when that one starts to kind of wane just a little bit, we get in the minivan and go to East County to Florence's parents' house. So one friend said, you know, you just must be exhausted by the end of Christmas Day. And the reality is I'm just completely charged up and amped. Like for, for an extreme extrovert during COVID time to have that much fellowship and community and celebration... It is good news for me. So I love hearing stories of what Christmas was like for you. And one of the things I've noticed, as and you probably noticed too, as you look through your news browser, at this time now, everyone kind of turns the corner and starts looking toward the new year. And so you'll read more articles about New Year's resolutions, more, more articles about how to leave behind the bad stuff in 2020 and embrace the good stuff of 2021. And and I think we've already started doing this a long time ago. You started seeing the memes on Instagram, you know, so long 2020 back at Halloween. But now we officially get to do it. I was reading in the New York Times uh, yesterday by one of their travel writers who said for a travel writer to not be able to travel in 2020 has been so demoralizing. And the only thing that's really kept her afloat with her hope is either remembering old trips or planning and anticipating new ones to come. Many people have a bucket list of things that you want to make sure you do as soon as possible, as travel's available, as kind of the world opens up. But here's the theme, is that as a people, regardless of our spiritual background or where you are in your faith journey, it seems to be a universal principle that we all want the broken things to be fixed, and we want to believe that next year can be better than this year. We all want, we don't use these words, but we all want redemption on one hand of the broken stuff, And we want consolation that things can get better. And I find it intriguing when you overlay all of those articles and all the stories we tell with what we just read. 
This scripture that took place 2,000 years ago in a temple in Jerusalem, when this little baby Jesus was brought in on the, on the eighth day, and you meet these interesting and odd and powerful characters. Simeon, who is in his advanced age, who somehow has received some sort of message from God that he will see the Savior of the world in the flesh on this side of the new creation. But what does it say about Simeon? What was he looking for? Looking forward to the consolation of Israel. Anna, this woman who was 84 years old, she had been married probably, as girls were back then, probably in her mid-teens. Let's say she was married at 15 years old. She lived with her husband for seven years. So that's 22, quick pastor math. And then he passed away. And she spent the next 62 years in the temple praying. Can you imagine that life? But what does it say that she was looking for? Verse 38, looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. We're looking for the broken things to be fixed, for redemption. And we're looking for hope that tomorrow can be better than today, for consolation. And the good news of Christmas is that that comes not through five steps of how to be a, a better version of yourself next year or a great vacation that you can plan and put on, on the calendar and look forward to. Those, though those things are not bad, if they become your ultimate driving force, they'll ultimately let you down. The good news is this redemption and this consolation, the fixing of the broken things, and the hope for tomorrow does not come in a program, but in a person. You know, as I mentioned, Christmas is both a great time for many of us and a time of survival for many of us. To say Merry Christmas is a conflicted thing to say because for some of us, there's anticipation and hope, and for others of us, there's hesitation. But look at the sense of anticipation and hope that these two unlikely characters, Simeon and Anna, have as they look forward to consolation and redemption. Now, those are loaded words. Those are words that are used throughout the Old Testament to talk about what people who are experiencing real hardship, political hardship, economic hardship, physical and health difficulties, going through real difficult times, and they're looking for things to get better, for God to step in and do something they could never do for themselves. The question is, why do we universally as human beings long for that? Any culture, any ethnicity, any language, any time zone, any time period, human beings are looking for the broken things to be fixed and for consolation that next year can be better than this one for hope. And scripture says those things are hardwired into the DNA of what it means to be a human being. And the reason they're hardwired into your DNA is because they are actually there to be longed for. They are there to be met in him. And Christmas comes to you and me and says, and it's here right now. It's breaking forth right now. So in the time we have, let's just get into what we learn from Simeon and Anna and this interesting scene in the temple about redemption. Okay? Redemption that's radically inclusive, redemption that demands a response, and redemption that brings peace even through suffering. Now that word redemption, if you double click on it, all sorts of definitions will pop up on your screen. Redemption on one hand is to take something that was broken and to make it work. Redemption is to take someone who was a slave and to buy them so that you can set them free. Redemption is to take things that are not the way they're supposed to be and to make them reflect the goodness and the glory of God. That's what we're talking about when we say redemption that's radically inclusive. The question is, do you see 
that he came not just for the world, but he came for you specifically. There's nobody off limits. There's nobody outside his scope. There's no situation in your life in which God says, you know, I actually, I can't enter into that part of it. He says, I want to be a part of all of it. Now, here's the interesting thing, because I know someone right now is saying, look, Christianity is the exclusive religion. Christianity is the religion that decides who is an insider and who's an outsider, and then the insiders might spiritualize the way they talk about it by saying they're sinners or they're bad or they're whatever. But I want you to see that that's actually quite the opposite of what following Jesus means. In the first century, in the early church, the scandal of the church, the scandal of the community of faith, was not that they were too exclusive, but that they were too inclusive. You can go back and read about this in your history books. In the Roman Empire, there was no problem with anybody being exclusive. They wanted to have a stratified society. You were a Roman citizen, or you were an outsider. You were wealthy, or you were poor. You had power, or you didn't. And you knew where you stood in society. And in Hebrew society, which was over, underlaid with, you know, with the Roman Empire as the Roman Empire was occupying Israel, you were Hebrew or you were a Gentile. Now, Gentile is not a particular ethnic group. Gentile is the Greek word ethnos, from which we get the word ethnicity. So I want you to, to kind of wrap your mind around that the Hebrew mentality is you are either a Hebrew or you're one of them, whatever they might be. And I want you to notice the location of this dramatic prophecy we just heard. They're in the temple. The temple was the epicenter for the Jewish people of where you would go to meet with God. And the temple actually had certain rings from which, you know, the the more of an insider you were in society, the closer you could get to where they they knew was the center uh, of meeting with the very presence of God. And it's precisely in that place in the center of the world for Israel, the Jerusalem temple, that God discloses that salvation will be not just for the insiders, but for the Gentiles. He takes it all the way to the core of the inside to say, there's no longer insider and outsider because I call you all into my family. And then you see this play out dramatically in all the scriptures that we bring out and remember throughout these weeks. We met the shepherds on Christmas Eve, these ragtag, probably pretty dirty, pretty smelly young boys who are probably not admitted to the temple all that often. Next week, or in a couple, in, in a couple days, we'll see the, the wise men, the magi, the astrologers, the educated, the erudite, the elite, those with resources, but those who are religiously outsiders, they will be coming. You see this young girl, Mary, coming with Joseph and Jesus, and they were poor. This is one of those passages we know they were poor because it tells us the offering that they gave, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. That was part of the law of God. If you, When you had a baby boy, you'd bring them to the temple, you'd dedicate them to God, and then depending on your wealth, you would give a certain sacrifice. If you were really wealthy, you'd give, you know, bulls and cows and all that. If you're really poor, you'd give two pigeons. And that's what they could, that's all they could afford. So what's the point? Who did Jesus come for? For the Hebrews and for the Gentiles. For the powerful and for the powerless. For the wealthy and for the poor. For the young and you see with Anna and Simeon and for the elderly. I think scripture is trying to show you, playing every instrument in the symphony until you can hear the whole song, God comes to earth and he does it 
for you. He does it for all. New creation has become. The advent of Jesus Christ means the king has landed and he looks at all of it and says, I'm out to redeem all of it. There's not one iota he doesn't know. There's not one Adam that he does not care about. And he looks at you and says, I am yours and you are mine. So the simple question is, when I say this to you right now, I'm just, I'm curious if you can kind of get in touch with your own internal response. When I say the king of the world came into this world for you, what's the little objection that your heart or your mind puts up? Yeah, but he doesn't know this about me. Yeah, but I've done this. Yeah, but this has happened in my life. And I want you to just let this overwhelm that when you see the great length to which he goes to to get through to you. It's redemption that's radically inclusive. And it's redemption that demands a response. Because Simeon's great thanksgiving tells us that redemption is for all. It's a universal offer. And Simeon's warning to Mary tells us that though his offer of redemption is available to all, it will not be embraced enthusiastically by all. And here's why. It's a universal offer, but it presents a personal challenge. It's challenging. Jesus comes to you not as an assistant that you buzz into your office every now and then when you need help with a decision. Jesus comes to you not as a paramedic that you can call 911 and have show up when you've blown things up in your life and you need some help putting things back together. I'm sure he'll show up in both instances, but that's not primarily how he arrives. He does not come as an assistant or a task rabbit or a delivery person. He comes as king of kings. He comes as lord of lords. Staking out a claim on everybody, he walks to you and me and says, I love you to the heights, I know you to the depths, and I created you, and I call you mine. Every inch of our lives and hearts, he is claimed as his own. And if you take that seriously, there's conflict. There's tension. There's resistance. There's no way to stay neutral when someone comes to you and says, your whole life is mine. You either resist them and you fight them off or you submit to them and comply with obedience. But the one thing you don't do is stay neutral. It demands a response. Now, we avoid this like crazy because it makes us so uncomfortable. We avoid what Simeon calls the rise and fall of many and we want to live our lives somewhere right in the middle. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is not asking you to do anything particularly new when he says, I give my life for you, now give your life to me. I am yours and you are mine. He's not actually asking us to do anything particularly new. And here's what I mean by that. We all give our lives to something. We might not use this language or this, this, uh, these words, but we do each want to be some sort of king or queen or ruler of our own lives, to call our own shots, to go our own way. Maybe you want to be the king or queen of your career, and amass as much success as you can, as many promotions as you can. You want to be the king or queen of your own reputation, whether it's your reputation in your friendship groups, your reputation online through social media. We want to manage the image that we present to this world because we believe that if we can give that glittering image to the world, then maybe things will feel better in here. Maybe you're managing your stock portfolio or your retirement fund with such a fastidious fascination 
that you're saying, this is the thing that's going to make me right. This is the thing that's going to make me whole. And as I said in the beginning, these are not bad things in and of themselves. And that's part of the insidious situation we're in, is we can take good things, like relationships or career or finances or health. We can take good things and we make them ultimate things. And they're not ultimately strong enough to support us through the ups and downs of this life. Or to put it this way, your career will never give its life for you. But it will demand that you give your life for it if you let it. So we're not being invited to do anything that we don't already do. What are those areas for you? What are those aspects where you can't seem to put in his hands? Maybe you're saying, I need to know that he'll come through for me. I need to know that I can trust him. The reason I hold on so tightly to this aspect of my life is because I'm not sure if I could trust him to be good with this. I need to be safe. Richard Rohr, the theologian, wrote in his Advent devotional book, what we're all searching for is someone to surrender to, something we can prefer to life itself. Well, here's the wonderful surprise. God is the only one we can surrender to without losing ourselves. The irony is that we find ourselves and now in a whole new field of meaning. See, the people who met Jesus had the same questions. Is there hope for the future? Is there any way that the things that are broken can be put back together? And many of the people responded to him by dropping everything and following him. The question is why? And I think they would say, because we saw him as a king. We saw him as a king with power, but we realized he was a king unlike any other. He's a king who uses his power on our behalf, not just to amass his own fortune. And as we say often here, he's the only one that when you serve him, you become who you were created to be. And when you fail him, he'll forgive you. And so Entering into this redemption that's radically inclusive, that demands a response, it begins when you can start to say, I can trust him. He's not just useful to me because of the things he could do for me, but he's beautiful on his own accord and his own merit. It demands a response. And finally, it's redemption that brings peace through suffering. And now this is a really hard part of this passage for me because I want to stay on the sunny side. When I watch movies that have difficulty and tension and discord, I want to fast forward to the part where it gets resolved as quickly as possible. And yet, Scripture doesn't do that. The Bible actually gives you an honest look at life. It lifts up a mirror to your life and to mine, and it's honest about suffering. It says suffering is a part of the human condition on this side of the new creation. You know, we, we know that, that suffering or trial or struggle or giving. I mean, all of that's a part of the most worthwhile things in life. You know, the best friendships, the best relationships, the best marriages all involve some sort of struggle and tension and suffering. To learn a, a musical instrument, you have to go through years of building up calluses and learning chord progressions, suffering and struggle and giving so that you can create something beautiful. Parenting is like that. Succeeding in a career is like that. All things worth doing involve some sort of struggle and suffering, let alone just the suffering of enduring the ups and downs of this unstable world. I think that's one of the things this COVID pandemic has done for us. I mean, now there are new words that we have invented to describe what it's like to be us in the midst of a pandemic because we're getting involved and and getting in touch with our suffering. Doom scrolling. Doom scrolling is continuously moving from one bad news article to another. 
I read an article the other day that said doom scrolling will not fend off the apocalypse, but it may uh, wither away your mental ability to deal with it. It's not good for you is what they're saying. Uh, you know, Zoom fatigue and all these other words. That's a way of talking about suffering that we're all enduring right now. And scripture says, yeah, suffering is a part of the human condition. So Simeon says to Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, if I meet Simeon one day in the new creation, I want to just tell him, look, that's a hard line to preach, Simeon. So I kind of either wish you didn't say it or wish that it didn't make it in the Bible because you're not doing me any favors as a pastor here. But here's what's happening. Mary stands there as a representative of everybody who will ever decide to follow Jesus. If you love him, if you stand by him, if you follow him, a sword will pass through your own heart also. It's realistic. It's what we might call the suffering of discipleship. It's hard things in your life that will actually lead to good things in your life as you follow him. I want to point out just a few examples. When you decide to follow Jesus, maybe for the first time or maybe it's been a long time and you're saying, I'm coming back to him. We unpacked this word repentance a few weeks ago. Repentance means to rethink your entire life in light of God's ultimate reality. You make a, you make a turn. You make a, a new course adjustment. That will feel in many ways like you're losing something because you are. You're losing your grip and your management and your control on all sorts of important aspects of your life. You're going to see God in a new way and see yourself in a new way. This is what scripture talks about when it says, die to yourself so that you might rise with him. But there's suffering involved to get to the new life. So just know, friends, if you're considering becoming a Christian or if you've recently become one and it feels like suffering in some way, it's not a sign that you're doing it wrong. It might be a sign that you're actually paying attention and following him because he moves into the suffering of this world. There's suffering, the sword that pierces your heart when you obey him, even though it costs you. There are many places in your life as a Christian where you will find yourself at a crossroads. And if you choose to go this direction, there's comfort. And if you choose to go this direction, there's obedience. And you're called to move toward the pain points of this broken world. And when you do, you will experience the vicarious trauma of this world. Again, it's not a sign you're doing it wrong. It's a sign that you're actually paying attention and engaging with follow Jesus. So if you obey him and you follow him and you pour yourself out on behalf of this world, if you trust him when you have your vote and he has his vote and you say, even though I don't fully agree, even though I don't fully feel it, I'm going to trust you on this one, you might lose some of your money. You might lose some of your reputation. You might lose some of your relationships. There will be a cost. Christian friends, one question that we can ask ourselves is, what's something that you're doing in your life right now simply because you love and follow Jesus? What's one way that you're costly pouring yourself out? What's one way that you're moving toward other people that you otherwise might not move toward? Of course, right now you might not be able to do it physically, but that could be through phone calls, through text messages, through Zoom meetings. How are you living your life, not just for your own best moment now, for your own existential moment, but to pour yourself out on behalf of others? It's suffering that comes with mission. The mission to restore and renew all things, to actually pour yourself out in a costly way. And many of you do this much more than me, as much as I want to strive to be someone who pours myself out. 
you enter into the human experience of other people around you. I'm thinking particularly this morning about educators in our community, teachers, who you are trying to figure out how to care for these students through a medium of Zoom, and you are part educator, part confidant, part wrangler of the students, and you're doing it at great cost to yourself because it's hard. But in instead of choosing to literally phone it in or Zoom it in, you're showing up every day the best you can to care for these students. I think about people who are caring for children in the house while you have your own job that you need to manage and choosing to stay engaged. I think about those of us in the community who, you know, as you're doom scrolling and reading one bad news article to the next, instead of letting it just bury you under a mound of darkness and sadness, you actually say, I'm going to find one thing I could do to make a difference. We showed up here yesterday for Know Your Neighbor. And as we were sharing hot slices of pizza and good conversation, I cheered as I watched you step outside your comfort zone and make new friends with people you really don't have that much in common with. It doesn't come naturally, but we choose to engage with our friends and with our neighbors in a way that's warm and connected. It would have been much easier to just stay home that day, and yet we choose to go out and to move forward. But there's suffering that's involved with mission. Now, here's the promise. Here's the promise. Throughout all the ups and downs of this life, through all the unpredictability and the things that we just can't foresee, through the suffering of following him and pouring ourselves out on behalf of others, he says, I promise I will be with you in the midst of suffering. And some of you are experiencing profound pain and sorrow and grief. And Simeon comes to you and me and says, don't forget, when it feels like the sword is piercing your heart, he is near. The king has landed. New creation is underway and is actually moving toward you and me right now. One of the most profound examples we get of this is when we look not at the manger, but when we look at the cross. And at the cross as Jesus is there being crucified by the collusion of religion and the empire, and he's hanging unjustly on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I'm sure that Mary, his mother, the same woman who brought him to Simeon, to Anna, to the temple, the same woman who treasured and pondered all these things in her heart, decades later will be there at the foot of the cross saying, where is God? With a sword in her own heart. And what we know on this side of the resurrection is that in that moment of sadness, in that moment where it felt like all the options were exhausting and the, the end of this story is a bad one, that God was actually working out the redemption of the whole world. And so a Christian is someone who can walk through the difficulty of this world and not minimize it, not medicate it, not make excuses for it, not blame shift it onto somebody else, but can actually look at the difficulties of this world. To cry real tears, to face your fears, to be real about your own anger, and know that it is not the final word. Because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. Christians realize that suffering and troubles, and difficulties, and temptations, these things are going to come. It doesn't mean they don't hurt. It doesn't mean they don't sting. It doesn't mean they don't make us sad. But they don't have the final word. And we see 
in that very first Christmas. The God of all creation entering into our human condition. A God who knows what it's like to be cold, to be hungry, to be ridiculed, to be abandoned. A God who knows what it's like to be you and me. And a God who on the cross and in his resurrection has done something about all of it. And so this talk of the light shining in the darkness and the darkness never overcoming it is not simply a hallmark platitude that looks nice on greeting cards. It's actually the generative power of the universe to make all things new. So where does Simeon get hope? Where does Simeon get peace? He says, now I can have peace because my eyes have seen your salvation, a light of salvation to the Gentiles, to all people. There's a future glory, and we look ahead. And so, friends, this week, I invite you, as we turn the page to 2021, to let this story season your hope for redemption and for consolation. Let this story propel you into 2021, not only making goals for yourself, but making goals to pour yourself out on behalf of others with great hope and generosity. Because the light does shine in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would be moving into our questions and our fears, our hopes and our dreams, our plans and our goals. As we reflect on this past year, as we anticipate the next one, help this to be the anchor of our thoughts and our lives, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. We pray this for our lives individually. We pray this for the church of Renew San Diego. We pray this for the city of San Diego, for our country and for our world. Come Lord Jesus, we pray in your name, amen. Thank you.